We're going to begin our lesson this morning in the book of Matthew, chapter 20. We're going to notice just a few verses here, starting in verse 17. It says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road, and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. In the third day, he will rise again. In this very short passage, we find several different individuals referenced in connection with how Jesus was going to be killed. We see the Jews referred to, we see the Gentiles. And the question that we want to ask this morning is, who killed Jesus? Who is responsible for his death? And so we're going to look at the evidence over the course of the lesson and see if we can't reach the proper conclusion to that question. As you have a lineup of people here, as we do up on the screen, typically, I think most people, if they were asked the question, who killed fill in the blank, and this was your, uh, these were your choices that you were given, You'd probably pick that guy on the right there. (laughs) He doesn't look like a very, very uh, upstanding individual, does he? Whereas the other people look like someone you probably know. Somebody who is upstanding and we might say a good person. Ultimately, at the end of the lesson today, I think that we're all going to realize some very humbling truths regarding who killed Jesus. But as we get started, we're going to ask the question, was it the Romans? Was it the Gentiles who were in charge, who carried out all of the procedures that ultimately led to his death? It was the Romans, as we're going to notice, that had him scourged. It was the Romans who marched him up the hill. It was the Romans who nailed him physically to the cross. And so, can we shift all the blame to them? Maybe that's the solution to this question that we've posed. Well, let's notice a couple passages. In John chapter 18, beginning, verse 28, It says, they led Jesus from Caiaphas, who was the high priest. So at this point in the narrative, he's with the Jews. So they led him from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early in the morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that is, the Jews, but that they might eat the Passover. So Pilate then went out to them, and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, 
we would not have delivered him to you. So they don't really answer the question. They more or less just say, well, why would we have brought him if he didn't do some terrible thing? More or less a way of answering without answering. So Pilate says to them, you take him and you judge him according to your law. But then the Jews said, well, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. So we clearly see here that the Jews handed things over to the Roman officials in order to see Jesus ultimately put to death. And if you go back and you study uh, historically what the Jews are referencing here, the fact that they didn't have the right to kill him themselves, you'll find that that is indeed true. Uh, Under the Roman law, these Jews didn't have any kind of authority to do things like that. It had to be done by the Romans themselves, if, if it was to be done at all. So, right off the bat, things aren't really looking too great for the Romans, are they? We see that everything was kind of transferred over into their hands. In John 19, verse 16, it says, He delivered him to them to be crucified. That is Pilate. So they took Jesus, he's the Roman soldiers, and they led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha where they, that is, again, the Roman soldiers, crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. In verse 23, it says, The soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from top, uh, from the top in one piece. So they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. So now we're even getting getting into prophecy here, right? And it's prophetically spoken that these soldiers would be the ones doing some of these things that we see now being carried out. Verse 31 says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. Notice again, the Jews are going to the Romans here. They're going to the authority of Pilate to request these things. And so the soldiers came, and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. In verse 38, we might also notice here, it says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body, uh, we know, of course, to be put into the tomb. So in all these things, we see that who's being asked permission? 
Well, it's the Romans, it's the Gentiles, right? It's very plain that they were in control here. But then we come to verses 10 and 11 of John 19, and this kind of throws a wrench into the works. It seemed like we were on the right track here, but we got to consider all the evidence. Now, in verses 10 and 11, we find Pilate is having a conversation with Jesus. And Pilate says to him, are you not speaking to me? Remember that as Pilate had been questioning him, he was silent. He wasn't given any answers. So Pilate reminds him, he says, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? In other words, you're in my hands here. Depending on how you behave and how you answer me or would not answer me, uh, I'm going to determine what happens to you. So then notice what Jesus answers, verse 11. He says, you can have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. And then he says, therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So that kind of shifts the blame away from Pilate and the Roman officials, doesn't it? Now, who's the one that delivered Christ into their hands? Well, that was the Jews. We, we read that earlier. So that becomes the next question, doesn't it? Well, maybe it was the Jews. Maybe we should point the finger at them. After all, like we just said, the Romans never would have carried out this crucifixion and all the other things associated with it if the Jews hadn't pushed it on to them. So maybe that is where we need to place the blame. Let's notice some passages here. Acts 3, verse 13. Now here Peter's speaking to some of the Jews, and he says, The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, notice he says, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. That's interesting. And we're going to notice what he's referencing here as we continue on. But this again shows us that actually Pilate, at least at one point in the proceedings, especially towards the end, he was like, you know, this guy's innocent. There's, there's no reason to put him to death, especially in the manner in which you're demanding that he be killed. And so it was the Jews who were the ones demanding these things to be done. John 19, verse 12, notice there, it says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, and they said, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So now they're threatening his livelihood and his position of power. When Pilate heard what they were saying, it says he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. But they, that is the Jews, cried out. They said, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And things are really not looking good for the Jews at this point, are they? 
In chapter 18 of John, verse 37, Pilate therefore said to Christ, verse 37, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said, What is truth? When he'd seen this, he went out again to the Jews. He said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now turn with me, if you would, to Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 27. A little bit longer passage here, starting in verse 15, we're going to read down through verse 26. It says there at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. The feast that he's referencing there is the Passover, of course. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. So here again, we see the mentality of Pilate. Once he had some initial conversation with Christ, he recognized, look, there's, there's no fault in this guy. And so he's trying to find a way to persuade the Jews to just drop the matter. So he thinks about this custom, right? Well, every year uh, I release a prisoner, whoever the, the crowd demands be released. So I'll think of the worst possible guy that we have locked up. And surely when they're given the, the option of which one they'd like to release, they're going to pick Christ because, I mean, who would want Barabbas released based on what he'd done? So verse 19 says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife's uh, sent to him, said, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that, should, that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said, well, what then shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather that a tumult, we might say a, a riot was breaking out, he took water and says he washed his hands before the multitude. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. And so he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I don't know, if you stop right there, we probably all agree that the Jews were, might say, guilty as sin, right? You hear that phrase used? I want us to notice a couple more things, though. In Acts chapter 2, this is Peter's famous sermon, 
In verse 22, verses 22 and 23, Peter says some things that are kind of curious and make you kind of pause and, and think. As he's addressing his Jewish audience, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you through miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Notice he says in verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and you've crucified and you've put him to death. So Peter acknowledges the fact that all this that took place, all that the Jews did, all that the Gentiles did, the Romans specifically, it was all part of a plan. God had foreknowledge of these things. Well, that's interesting. What's that all about? We might also notice Luke chapter 23, verse 33. Now here again, Luke is describing what happened with Jesus and his crucifixion. It says, when they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. And notice what Jesus says here which is very interesting, especially as we think about the guilt and who should we place all the blame upon. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Roman officials who are carrying these things out. He's talking about the Jews who are still looking on, who had been the ones that put him there. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They don't comprehend, really, what is happening here, in other words. So, could it be somebody else, you think? If this was all part of some kind of plan, and Jesus, as he hung there, dying, asked God to forgive these people for all that they'd done, and were doing... Maybe we've had it wrong here. Maybe it's not the Romans. Maybe it's not the Jews. Maybe somebody else is to blame here in all this. You know, come back with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Probably the most quoted and most well-known prophecy of Christ. We're going to read just a, a portion of the chapter together. We're going to read verses 4 through 6 and then jump down and read verses 10 through 12. And so it says there, again, prophetically of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we 
are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. That reminds you of what Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the lawlessness of us all. In other words, the punishment due for said sin. In verse 10 it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. In other words, what Jesus would do, God is going to be satisfied. The debt that had been incurred because of this sin is going to be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Everything that we've been thinking about this morning is kind of like what Nathan did with David, if you recall that story, where David had gotten caught up in all these sinful activities because he was doing what David wanted to do. And eventually, God sends Nathan to him. And Nathan doesn't come to him and just immediately say, hey, look, look at all these things you did wrong. He He kind of tells a story. And then as David becomes upset at this story, Nathan says, you're the man. You're the one in the story that caused all this. Who killed Jesus? I killed Jesus. And you killed Jesus. You know, all these things that we've read about this morning, all these terrible things that they did to Christ. That's what each of us have done. Because we've chosen to do sinful things in our lives, we've lied, we've cheated, we've lusted. Any sinful thing that you can think of, and we've all sinned. We have, in essence, been the one shouting, crucify him. We are the ones, in essence, that demanded a murderer be released to us instead of the Christ. We are the ones who nailed his hands to that wooden beam and raised him up from the earth. We are the ones that scourged his back. That's what sin does. Now the question becomes, what will you do with that information? 
What will you do in response to that recognition of guilt? There's several different options. One would hope that we would be like those on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, in a lot of ways, everything that Peter said to them is everything that we've been saying to ourselves here this morning. We've been pointing out the fact that Jesus has been put to death and we're all the ones that are guilty of of him having done or suffered all that he did. When they heard that message, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They were sorry. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What are we going to do about this? How are we going to make this right? Peter said to them, repent. Change. Stop sinning. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit, as he goes on the next verse to to talk about it, is the promise. The promise of what? Life and blessing. Made all the way back to Abraham, way hundreds and hundreds of years ago. That's the proper response. In recognition of why Jesus died, he died to save you and me from the penalty of our sins, the wages of sins, uh, sin is death, Romans 6.23. We need to turn from sin and we need to embrace this gift that's been given to us through his sacrifice, this ability to be cleansed and to have hope. On the other hand, though, we could be like those in Acts 7. Now here Stephen is the speaker, and he's laying down the same message, more or less. He's describing to them uh, their guilt concerning Christ. And when those on that occasion heard the things, they were also cut to the heart. They were convicted. They recognized their guilt. But, you know, rather than saying, well, what do we do to make it right? They just became bitter and they became angry. And they didn't want to hear any more. And so they gnashed at him with their teeth. And what they ultimately did was they killed the messenger and they stoned Stephen to death. It's impossible when you hear the gospel to not be cut to the heart. The question becomes, well, what's your reaction then going to be in light of that reality? Are you going to reject it because you don't like to think about it? Or you just uh, latch on to one of these made-up conclusions about, well, the Bible's all made up anyway. None of this is real. Or will you embrace what God is offering you? A way to be saved from your sins. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 9, you recall there that the apostles had healed a man and that turned into a whole thing uh, because the Jews were upset especially because of whose name they were healing people by and so in verses 9 through 12 here you find that Peter and the apostles are before the Jewish officials and 
giving an answer for themselves. They say, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Notice he says, nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You don't have any other option. You either embrace Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for your sins, or you reject him, like many did in the days of the early church. Maybe you are a Christian. We understand scriptures, and that's a whole other sermon, but just because we've obeyed Christ, we put on Christ in baptism, doesn't mean that we're automatically uh, immune from any kind of further error in our lives or further sins. If we fall back into sin, we're going to, again, be cut off. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you are a Christian, but you've wandered back into sinful things. And in being reminded of the fact of why Jesus died, you are recognizing, look, I need to get back on course again. Now, how do we do that as Christians? Acts chapter 8, verse 22, Peter gave instruction to Simon, who was in that same boat. He said, repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. We need to repent, just like we did, supposedly anyway, at the beginning. We need to confess it. We need to not act as if it's not there, but humbly acknowledge that, yeah, I've sinned. I've messed up, and I need to make it right. 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. The audience here is Christians. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Paul there in 2 Corinthians 6, as he spoke to the Corinthians, he said, We then as workers together with him, with Christ, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Paul says, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Those words ring as true as they did when they were first written down here as they do today. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. If you need to get right with God, then do it today. Now, as we begin to conclude this morning, I want us to go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. These verses are probably very familiar to most people here. Matthew chapter... I said 16, didn't I? Did I say 15? 16 is where we want to be. And we're going to start in verse 13 and read down through verse 17. It says there that when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, and he said... Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
So they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. And others that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. That's interesting if you really stop and think about this. Now, we refer to this passage a lot, but you think about what Jesus did here. He starts by asking a very good question. Who is it that men say that I am? And you notice that as they gave answers, well, there was all kinds of different answers, right? All, all different opinions as to who Jesus really was. But then he asked really the, the most significant question. Okay, well, this guy over here thinks I'm this person and these people over here have this opinion. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, correctly identified who he is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so that's the question I want you to think about this morning. On the day of judgment, it's not going to matter what I thought about Jesus. It's not going to matter what Rick thinks about Jesus or what Mel thinks about Jesus. What's going to matter is who do you say that he is? Remember what John wrote in... the conclusion of his gospel account. Verse 30 of chapter 20 says, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The evidence is there, friends. What is your conclusion based on that evidence? Will it be the same as the eunuch in Acts chapter 8? Remember, Philip came to him and was teaching him the gospel message, explaining to him the prophecies that were written about Christ back in the Old Testament. In verse 36, it says, as they were going down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, well, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they both went down to that water, and Philip baptized him there. What hinders you this morning? If you've never put on Christ, or if you're living in sin and need to repent, what hinders you? Our prayer for each one here this morning is that we would all set aside whatever hindrance it is, whatever silly uh, rationale we've come up with in our minds to put aside or sweep under the rug the truth about Jesus Christ, that you would confront it head on this morning and if necessary, do what you need to do to make yourself right before him and before God Almighty. If we can assist you in that, we would be thrilled. We would be elated. 
to be able to help you wash your sins away, not because of anything you're going to do, but because of what Jesus did, and be able to walk out those doors this morning with a smile on your face and confidence, knowing that if the earth ceases in the next hour, you know exactly where you're going to be. You're going to be safe in the arms of Christ. If you have a need this morning, please make it known. Please come up to the front now while we stand together and while we sing the song that's been chosen.